You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide. In Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Elon Musk subpoenas former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. What could Dorsey say that would help Musk get out of the deal? We'll discuss. Plus, big tech regulation was in line for a big vote in Congress, but has since been sidelined in the midst of a worsening economy and a war on Ukraine. One of the top crusaders to take on the power of tech joins us this hour, Representative David Cicilline, chair of the House Antitrust Subcommittee. And digital medicine gets real. The maker of an FDA-approved video game that treats ADHD goes public via SPAC today. The CEO of Akili will be here. Meantime, Elon Musk has subpoenaed former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey in his latest attempt to get out of this $44 billion deal. Musk has accused the company of misrepresenting its bot accounts and hiding the names of employees responsible for dealing with bot issues. Here to give us the latest update, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, who of course covers Twitter for us. So why would Musk subpoena Jack Dorsey? Well, he was the CEO of the company for six years. He's been on the board up until May for the entirety of the company's existence. And so you would think if anybody knows about the growth of the company, how they handle metrics, who's reporting, you know, on the earnings call every quarter, it was Jack Dorsey, right? So this is someone who knows the company intimately, but also as a product person, he knows how the company grows and how they probably calculate these kinds of things. We know Twitter has subpoenaed a bunch of Musk's inner circle, various entrepreneurs and investors. Remind us of the interaction that happened between Musk and Dorsey. This is documented in filings leading up to uh, Musk getting offered a board seat at Twitter, then leading to him offering to buy Twitter. Well, they're also friends, right? So the relationship goes back further. But what we saw in the filing was that shortly after Elon uh, got his stake in Twitter, he reached out to Jack Dorsey, started the conversation about how to get involved in the company. That led to a board seat offer, which he accepted. And that led to another uh, apparently phone call, at least some kind 
kind of contact in which Jack Dorsey told him, hey, you know, I think Twitter would actually operate better as an independent company. All of a sudden, a few days later, Elon says, I don't want to join the board. I want to buy the company instead. Now, we don't know exactly, of course, what was said in that conversation, but it seems to be that that was important enough that maybe Elon, you know, changed his mind and thought, I should take this company private. So do we think that Musk thinks Jack has something to say that would help him get out of this deal? Well, I would expect the Twitter side might want to subpoena Jack Dorsey as well, right? Because mm. it, remember, he is a key player in this whole thing. I don't think this is that crazy that they would want to say, hey, we, we want to see your communication. We want to see what you've been saying about this deal. It could be important. And I imagine both sides want that information, right? So this is not super crazy that he would do that, even though they're friendly. I don't know if he thinks, you know, Jack Jack's going to get him out of this necessarily, but it does seem important. Has Musk subpoenaed anyone else? Uh, he has subpoenaed other people. Kayvon Bakepoor, who is the head of product at Twitter for a long time, was uh, also announced today. Bruce Falk, who is the head of revenue product at Twitter. You might remember both of those uh, guys were actually let go by CEO Parag Agarwal shortly after he joined the company. So they are now no longer working at Twitter. They were still subpoenaed by uh, Elon Musk. So where are we now? Have we learned anything new about yeah. the bot issue? Or or lack thereof, what is the next phase? We are learning that there is a lot of people being subpoenaed right <laughs> now and that there's a lot of uh, people that both sides want to talk to. We're not um, getting information about necessarily what is in a lot of these subpoenas. A lot of them are, you know, are redacted or will be redacted. Um, and a lot of the evidence is, is closed. It's not uh, public to us. So at this point, we kind of know who they want to talk to. We're not necessarily getting a lot of information about what they're talking about. And Will they talk? Right. And who's going to be in person at this trial? Right. Presumably, Jack Dorsey might be one of those people. We can't say for certain, but he would make sense, certainly, to be a, a witness at something and like And we are expecting Elon Musk to testify, I right? I would think if so. That's, that's the expectation. But, you know, um, again, we don't know the roster of people, but how, how could Elon not be there? Meantime, you know, this has obviously continued to drag on. How is this, according to your sources inside Twitter, how is this continuing to impact the company, impact employees? Well, it's started off as a huge distraction, as you can imagine, right? Twitter's in the news every day. They're dealing with uh, the Elon's tweets about their product and their policies and their executives. I think at this point, a lot of the people who really hated this might have left by now. Certainly some of them have. And at a certain point, you have to continue to kind of do your job. But I do think there's still this cloud of uncertainty. It's not a very fun place to work right now when you just don't know what your future is going to hold in a few months. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for that update. Seems like a few long weeks between now and so. mid-October. Yeah. Okay, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, thank you. I think simply because you've been successful in a few different businesses doesn't somehow mean that you have unnatural market power. It just means you've been successful in a couple different customer experiences. I look at the opportunity we provide. I look at the skills people are learning through YouTube. Uh, you know, I feel it everywhere when I go talk to people. And, and providing access to information and knowledge, uh, I think we'll end up being on the right side of history as well. I don't think big by itself is bad, or but competition is good, and every business, in particular the businesses that are large and have high scale, the unintended consequences of your scale cannot be dealt after the fact they need to be dealt while you're scaling. Regulation will have an important role to play here. I think privacy regulation is important. In areas like AI, regulation will be important.
Some thoughts there from my interviews with various big tech CEOs over the last 18 months as antitrust scrutiny looms. The most talked about bill, the bipartisan American Innovation and Choice Online Act, targeting big tech, which would prevent companies like Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, and Apple from punishing rivals to boost their own products and services. It seemed to be on track to be considered by the Senate this summer, but more urgent bills like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act went ahead first. Now the antitrust bill is in limbo. Where's the momentum? Let's bring in Congressman and Antitrust Subcommittee Chair David Cicilline with us now. For more, Congressman Cicilline, it's so great to have you back with us. Thank you for taking the time. So look, does this vote uh, bill have enough votes to pass the House, and will you need more Republican votes to do that? Well, thank you for having me back. It's great to see you again. Uh, I'm pleased to say that both in the House and the Senate we have votes to pass uh, both of the bills, the APPS bill as well as the uh, uh, Innovation Online Act that you just referenced. Uh, they've been bipartisan since they were introduced. We, as you know, had a 16-month bipartisan investigation, wrote a 450-page report, and then delivered legislative solutions. This is one of them. Uh, we have the votes in the House and the Senate, but as you pointed out, the press of business, both with the Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS bill, the assault weapons ban, we've said a lot of things that we needed to address. My expectation is that we, when we return in September, we will take this bill up uh, first in the Senate, then in the House, and send it to the president's desk. So you're optimistic, then, that uh, Senator Schumer will schedule a date in September, and this will happen before the midterms? Well, Senator Schumer has said publicly, and I know I've been working very closely with Senator Klobuchar, there's a bipartisan uh, caucus of individuals in the Senate, like in the House, who strongly support this legislation, who understand uh, that in order to protect small businesses from the monopoly power of these large technology platforms, we need to restore competition in the digital marketplace. This is good for consumers, good for small businesses, good for competition, and strongly supported by the American people. Polling shows 75% of the American people believe that Congress must rein in big tech and restore competition. So it's good for small business. The public wants it. Our constituents want it. And I expect that Senator uh, Schumer is going to bring the bill to the floor in September, and we'll take it up in the House, and we'll send it to the president's desk, who, by the way, the president has been the most pro-competition president we've ever had, both in his executive order and his appointments in his administration, and someone who really understands that competition is at the heart of making our economy work for everyone. Still, there's concerns that, you know, even among Democrats, this bill could be weaponized to prevent big tech companies from moderating some of the most uh, extreme content. Does the bill need to change at all to address those concerns? And if the bill changes, can you get or keep those Republicans on board? Well, I don't think the bill needs to change. In fact, uh, so long as the policies that a platform has in place to, uh, you know, to provide protections against certain kinds of speech so that uh, particularly dangerous speech or uh, speech that they think is inappropriate. As long as that same standard applies across the board, and you don't say for liberal viewers this is one test, for more conservative viewers this is another test. So long as there's an established standard that applies across the board, then, it, then there would be no concern about implicating uh, the ability to moderate content. But the truth is, these platforms don't want to change anything. They want to preserve an ecosystem that has generated profits never seen in the history of the world because they favor their own products and services. They're collecting an enormous amount of data from consumers and monetizing that data. And they have no interest in competition. They want to continue to be able to acquire 
or crush or block their competitors so they can grow their market power and grow their dominance and grow their profits. They have they've spent over $120 million to kill this bill because they know it will bring competition. That's bad for our economy because competition is the single greatest driver of innovation. If we're going to remain a global economic power, we need to have competition in this space. And right now we don't. So you keep using the word they, and I assume you mean uh, Meta, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon. Here we are, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Is there one of those companies that concerns you more than the others based on how their power has evolved since you started talking about it? Well, I mean, they, all of these companies engage in behavior which is anti-competitive, which favors their own products and services, which uses their market dominance to bully or uh, crush competitors. Uh, they all engage in behavior which is really harmful to our economy and harmful to competition. I mean, I think in particular, Facebook or Meta, you know, it's funny you changed the name, their behavior hasn't changed. I think there's a direct line between Facebook and the misinformation and the spread of toxic and violent material that ultimately resulted in the attack on our democracy on January 6th. This is a business model that values, above all else, engagement. And as it turns out, the most provocative, most untrue, most dangerous content has the deepest engagement. So they have a business model that incentivizes amplifying the worst material. And uh, they're not, they have proven time and time again, they cannot regulate themselves. Congress has a responsibility to make sure that we're doing our part to restore competition and prevent these companies from really becoming instruments to undermine our democracy, which is what they've become. It's interesting you mentioned uh, Meta, given this uh, lawsuit that has come under Lena Khan's FTC uh, about the acquisition of a smaller VR company within Unlimited. Facebook says this deal will be good for competition. What's your reaction to that and the moves that Lena Khan has made so far at the FTC? Well, I'm proud to say that Lena Khan was on the team that conducted the investigation that I referenced for 16 months. She was central to the development of our report and the set of recommendations that form the basis of the legislation we're discussing. She's been a champion for competition her whole life. Uh, I'm delighted that she's at the FTC. And while I don't comment on a particular case, I have full confidence that she's pursuing an action that's because it will help restore competition and end anti-competitive behavior. And look, I don't think we can take any representation made by Meta or Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg seriously. Time and time again, they've been found to be engaging in anti-competitive behaviors. They go on, you know, Mark Zuckerberg goes on this national apology tour and then resorts to the same kind of anti-competitive conduct. And look, I think we've learned these companies are too big and they're not going to regulate themselves. Congress has a responsibility. We've abandoned that responsibility for a very long time. The good news is we're back. We're back in a bipartisan way. This can be and will be the next big bipartisan victory of the Biden administration when we pass these bills and get them to the president's desk. It's interesting because we just spoke to an investor, uh, Eric Vishria of Benchmark Capital last week, who called Apple the greatest monopolist of today and indicated that the FTC shouldn't be bothering itself with this meta acquisition, saying that Apple is crushing all of these small businesses under the guise of protecting privacy. What's your response to that? Well, all of these platforms are crushing small businesses. Amazon is doing it by collecting third-party data and then rolling out their own products to compete with people who sell in the marketplace and preferencing their position in that marketplace. Um, uh, 
Meta is doing it with the way that information is shared and, and preferencing, again, their own services and products. Uh, so they're all doing this. Apple and similarly is engaged in anti-competitive behavior. They all have different impacts, but the central tenant is that by undermining competition and engaging in, in preferencing your own products and services, you are undermining the ability of others to compete in the marketplace. You're making it impossible for small businesses to survive. You're degrading quality and you're in the end hurting consumers. And so we all know competition is good for the economy. As the president said, capitalism without competition is exploitation. He's right. These are da you know, data surveillance machines that are collecting incessantly information and using it to grow their market power. And the American people understand this. They are demanding that Congress do its part in reigning in big tech. We have the first set of bills to do that. And I have every confidence we're going to get them to the president's desk. We were talking about Elon Musk and Twitter earlier. Curious there, you know, given that he obviously runs two other big tech companies, Tesla, uh, SpaceX, which of course is still private. If he takes over Twitter, is that a deal that would have to be approved by regulators? And does it concern you that one person could have control over so many influential tech companies? Well, I mean, it's exactly the problem with having a single individual with this much market power and this much dominance. And it's not good for the economy. It's not good for competition. And, you know, you know, one billionaire buying another billionaire's company, this is not what a good, healthy, competitive economy looks like. So I think there are lots of reasons to be concerned. Um, but most importantly, we want to prohibit the worst kind of conduct, the self-preferencing that's really hurting consumers that's hurting small businesses. And a lot, you know, these companies will remain wildly successful companies simply because they're not allowed to cheat and engage in anti-competitive behaviors and favor their own products and services to the detriment of others. They're not going to suddenly not be successful. They're going to be wildly successful. They're just not going to get to engage in this sort of monopolistic behavior that's favoring their own products and services and really taking advantage of the dominance they have to continue to grow it and grow it and grow it so that it becomes more and more difficult for you know, new entrants into the market or for anyone else to compete with them. Meantime, Microsoft is still having conversations with regulators about its $70 billion deal to buy Activision. You know, some critics have said that Microsoft is somehow skirting the antitrust spotlight. Um, you know, do you think this deal goes through? Do you have any issues with this deal? And if not, why not? It's a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's not a question of whether the uh, the deal is big or whether a transaction is big. It's what kind of market share uh, does does a company represent, and what do they do with the power they have, the dominance that they have? And I think what we learned in our investigation after 16 months is these large technology platforms are using their market share to just protect their dominance, to prevent others from getting a competitive edge. The minute they see a competitive threat, they either acquire it, kill it, or exclude it. And that's the concern. And so, you know, some of your prior guests were saying, oh, just because a company's big is not a problem. No one's suggesting a company is big, uh, that that's the sole problem. But the same conduct we're attempting to prohibit, the self-preferencing, is at the heart of the Digital Markets Act. That's already happening in Europe. And these companies are already being required to comply with those provisions. So think about that. Small businesses in Europe are going to have more protection than small businesses in America. American small businesses are going to be at a disadvantage because they're not going to be protected from these practices in the way that they will be in Europe. And that's bad for the American economy. So that's why we've got to pass these bills. That's why we have to restore competition and give small businesses and innovators and competitors the ability to enter the market and compete successfully and fairly.
All right. Uh, Congressman and Antitrust Subcommittee Chair David Cicilline, good to have you back with us. Appreciate hearing uh, where your thoughts are now. And speaking of Activision Microsoft, I'm actually going to be speaking with Microsoft Gaming CEO Phil Spencer on the next edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. We talked about the deal with Activision, that episode coming up this Wednesday. We will be right back with more of Bloomberg Technology. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Apple employees are pushing back against the return to office. Apple asking workers to come back two to three days a week starting September 5th. But hundreds of employees have since signed a petition calling for even more flexibility without having to be approved by managers. This at a time when the term quiet quitting is making the rounds on social media. The idea is not that employees actually quit, but instead do the bare minimum that the job requires to maintain a healthy work-life balance. For the second time this year, Tesla is raising the price of the driver assistance system it calls full self-driving, the price going up from $12,000 to $15,000 in North America. The Tesla system is controversial because it requires active supervision, and some critics say it doesn't live up to its full self-driving name. And MoviePass is staging a comeback, the failed movie subscription service returning Labor Day weekend. There'll be three price tiers between 10 and 30 bucks a month. No option for unlimited viewing, which helped the concept reinvigorate the theater-going experience pre-pandemic. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Amazon is spending $1.5 billion to acquire iRobot, the maker of the Roomba vacuum. The deal had some confused because Amazon had already uh, had a robot butler in the works named Astro. How will Amazon integrate iRobot's products into its ongoing products and aspirations? Here to discuss iRobot co-founder Helen Grenier. She is also the CEO of Turtle a solar-powered weeding robot for home gardens. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. So obviously, I know iRobot goes way back. What do you make of Amazon buying the company now? 
Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm just thrilled to see Amazon showing such a strong interest in home robots um, and investing heavily in them, not just Astro, but now buying uh, iRobot. Um, they've got a track record of seeing where the future is going and helping accelerate it, you know, with e-commerce, with um, making uh, fulfillment centers more automated, with web services. And, and now home robots, um, my passion. Still, there's been concern that this gives Amazon access to even more of our data. Interior maps of our homes, for example. Like, do you worry about that? Should we be worried about that? I actually don't think people need to be worried whenever you have a new technology and technology keeps advancing so much. I mean, we get lots of technologies on all our devices, like our cell phones, right? You've got a GPS, you've got a camera. You don't need those to make phone calls, but the additional benefits that the technology gets you, like maps and video calls, pedometers, having, you know, the best camera is the one that's with you, right? So you get those great shots. Most people have decided that even those privacy concerns, that the benefits outweigh them. And I think it's the same with the robot vacuums, right? There is a camera on the most recent ones, but the cameras on, it's really optimized and cost reduced for navigation. And what it gets you is amazing. It gets you a better clean. Um, the robot can travel around, do cornrows up and down. It can go to a certain room that you want clean and go to the guest room, remember? Uh, it can, um, so go clean under the table. And so I think what you get for it, like any technology, you have to measure it. You know, you get all these features that you didn't have before, but what what data is being actually transmitted is a line drawing of your home, which you can go to Zillow and they'll give you all the information about your home, right? You can, um, you, you know, I've got the home maps of my home at the building department. I think there's better ways to get such information. Um, so I don't think the downside is really there. Now, it can also transmit pictures as an opt-in, and why? Like, what's the benefit of that, right? What, what does it get me? Well, what it gets you is a picture of your floor only. And one reason might be it's about to smear dog poop all over your floor. And that's something that I've read about on the web multiple times. It's never happened to me. I don't have a dog. But, um, you know, that's horrible, right? And now Roomba can avoid that because um, iRobot worked with Amazon Web Services and created all this technology, um, simulated data, you know, runs thousands and thousands of scenarios so you can recognize um, what's in the way. But so I think it's well worth it especially for pet, holders, pet owners to have that technology on board the Roomba. But you don't have to weigh it. And it's not just for pet owners, right? You might have a glass of wine on the floor. You might have a masterpiece that one of your kids created that fell to the floor. And now the Roomba right. doesn't come over it and crumple it up. <laughs> That's never happened to me with four kids. Um, <laughs> let's talk about how far you know these home robotics have actually come. I feel like this dream of sort of robots running around, dropping off my lunch, running errands, helping me around the house. It's you know very Silicon Valley pie in the sky, but it hasn't quite happened yet. Where do you think we actually are in the development of home robotics and where are we going? Yes, uh, I believe in the bottom-up approach. I believe you get them going for a certain tasks, right? You get them going for vacuuming. You get them going for weeding. Um, and then you can build technologies up on that and get more and more very capable robots in their specific domains of expertise. Um, one of the reasons I'm thrilled about the acquisition is to see where Amazon technology can combine with the iRobot technology to go further, faster.
There still are, you know, big concerns about the ethics of this, whether, you know, the big tech companies, whether it's Amazon or Google, um, you know, are really asking the right questions and giving the public the right choices as they're developing these technologies. I recently interviewed Blake Lemoyne, the Google engineer, who claims that computers and that Google has been developing sentient AI, that computers <laughs> essentially have feelings. I want you to take a quick listen to what he has to say. We should think about the feeling of the AI and whether or not we should care about it, because it's not asking for much. It just wants us to get consent. Before you experiment on it, it wants you to ask permission. <laughs> Helen, what do you think? And, and, and are these companies dealing with ethics yeah. in the right way? So, um, that's a broad question, but just specifically addressing that comment that he made, um, he's talking about science fiction, not science fact. Doesn't mean it can't happen in the future, but we are nowhere near that today. And I think Google is absolutely right uh, to let him go because he's not giving the public an accurate picture of where the, where the AI technology is at. It is not sentient. It's not even close to being sentient. Nobody has a path yet to make it sentient. So then, you know, what questions should we be asking about this technology? Are, are we not asking the right questions? I mean, you're working on a, a, a robotic weed whacker, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, well, I don't think there's too many ethical questions in this one. Nobody likes weeds because weeds are actually just defined <laughs> as unwanted plants. Um, so, you know, we put them on the market. It, I mean, in 2002, right? That's 20 years ago. <laughs> um, so it's almost a quarter of the vacuuming market. And I believe that next um, smart homes will extend to the outdoor area. And, um, you know, we have a, weed, uh, a weeding robot. And the way it works is it's got scrubbing wheels that keeps um, seeds from germinating. And if one a weed does sprout, we got a little weed whacker that cuts off its head. And you put it in at the beginning of the seeds of the growing season, or you do one last weeding, and it keeps it, um, it, it keeps it weeded. So that's one less thing on your to-do list that you have to go and do every week. Um, and, and I think that's just tremendous as a as a busy mom, as a busy working person, as you know, someone who's got other things on their list of things to do. It's a never-ending list of things to do, right? Um, and you know, the team at Turtle is thrilled to have come up with another great labor-saving home robot application, um, which is actually already available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Helen Grenier, appreciate your enthusiasm and talk to, talking to us about where the robotics world is now and is going. Uh, Co-founder of iRobot and the CEO of Turtle, Helen Grenier. Coming up, the crypto security industry boom. We're going to talk about how fortune favors these new niche companies, at least right now. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. 
Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Time now for our crypto report. And in the midst of the crypto winter, there's actually an industry boom happening in security. With criminals increasingly targeting the software infrastructure, underpinning the cryptosphere, firms screening through code for weaknesses and running bug hunting sites are finding themselves with more business than they can handle. Let's break this all down with Bloomberg's Olga Karif. So, Olga, why is business booming? Well, basically, the reason for this is there has been so much money stolen uh, from various crypto projects. Uh, just so far this year, about $2 billion, about two-thirds of it from um, applications called bridges, which allow people to move tokens from one blockchain to another. And obviously, in this kind of a situation where money is being stolen left and right, uh, a lot of projects feel like they need to do something. So instead of fortune favoring the brave, you're saying fortune is favoring crypto security firms, potentially niche ones at that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly right. So essentially the companies that are doing really great are companies that are auditing code of some of these crypto projects looking for bugs that hackers uh, can potentially exploit and also companies that run sites that um, essentially allow uh, sort of good hackers called white hat, uh, white hat uh, hackers to report uh, bugs that somebody else can potentially exploit and get paid a lot of money, sometimes, you know, up to $10 million. What makes cross-chain bridges so vulnerable to hacks? So this is a very, very complicated technology to begin with. And it's also uh, very often uh, managed in a very sort of opaque way. Uh, it's not clear who is responsible sometimes for running the bridge uh, smoothly and making sure, uh, you know, people even monitor for hacks. You know, in, in the case of many hacks so far this year, it took days uh, for, for some of these bridges to even find out that they got hacked and lost money. So there are a whole a host of, uh, there's a host of problems with these bridges that uh, need to be addressed and often sort of auditing and, uh, and other related security services can really help with that. So what are you watching for here? What do you think the biggest issues to cover as winter, you know, for the foreseeable future continues will be? Well, um, I think one of the uh, big issues here will be, you know, can bridges and uh, crypto projects in general, uh, can they become reliable and secure enough for people to have confidence in them? And so, uh, you know, this is a part of why the security firms are being hired because, you know, they these projects need to make sure that users do believe in them. And that's going to be the big thing going forward. All right. Bloomberg's Olga Karif, who covers the crypto industry for us. Thank you, Olga, as always.
We've talked a lot about the crypto winter, but what about the IPO winter? With some signs of life in the stock market, does that mean warmer temperatures to come? For public offerings, let's talk about the state of the slumbering IPO market with Bloomberg's Crystal Z. Crystal, it seemed like you were on this show every other day talking about IPOs, but it's been a while because the IPO market has been quite quiet. Is that about to change? Yeah, I've been talking more about the lack there of IPOs than <laughs> actual IPOs happening. Um, I think there are things that will come up as Labor Day approach. Uh, the IPO market likes to look at Labor Day as a milestone, and it's really likely that starting uh, Labor Day, we will see some companies flipping their filing public, and from then on, we are potentially going to see some IPO. That said, we're not going to see a complete comeback of the IPO market. The winter is not ending yet. Um, we will probably, um, from talking to sources, expect more deals or more sizable deals to come perhaps in the first quarter of next year instead of this year. Would you say the same for SPACs? Because the SPAC market has also been in disarray. I would definitely say the SPAC market is doing a little bit more poorly than the actual IPO market. We've seen some smaller sizes IPO come back. Instead of the billion dollar IPO, we're seeing probably a 20 million IPO, but that's still a good sign. And on a positive front, there's also follow-on offerings such as block trades, companies selling new shares. Those deals are coming back when have uh, the busiest uh, couple of weeks in 2022 just in August uh, because some of the VIX uh, indexes have gone down. You know, people are feeling more, um, they have more risk appetite as of this week. So things are looking up even though it's summer. Um, but if you look at SPACs, they are still trading much, much worse than some of the IPO from, next, uh, from last year. So unlikely we'll see the same level of activity that we saw last year or the year prior. All right, uh, Crystal Z, who covers IPOs and SPACs for us, thank you for that update. I want to keep talking about these companies uh, going public, IPO, SPAC or not. Uh, another one that just went out is Ely, the company behind the FDA-approved racing game Endeavor RX used to treat kids with ADHD and FDA approved. Joining me now, Eddie Martucci, CEO and co-founder of Akili. So look, Eddie, we just heard Crystal talking there about how hard it is uh, to go public right now. The SPAC market in particular, not doing well. Um, why did you decide now was the right time? Uh, we're delivering into a huge unmet need, Emily. Um, we founded this company almost a decade ago. And so we've been growing this new type of medicine class. We've had to invent a lot of it. Um, and the need that we started the company on, which is people dealing with cognitive issues, mental health issues, and not having a full, complete set of treatments for them, um, that has gotten worse over COVID, dramatically worse. And so we see a pretty urgent need, and we're at the point of the business where we know we can scale our medicine product. We have done the work to show that the fundamentals are there. Doctors are prescribing. Uh, patients are raising their hand. and and. Uh, the demand is there. And so it's just the right time for us to deliver on our long-term vision. For us, this is a long-term story of building a lasting medicine company. It's not um, a single point in time. Um, and so now is now is the time to grow. The investor, Chamath Palihapitiya, is backing your company. And of course, he's been, you know, he's got a number of SPACs, a number of them not doing so well. Akili shares didn't do so well uh, today uh, after the open. What kind of advice have you had from Chamath about, you know, why SPAC, why he still believes in uh, the SPAC process, and why go for it now? 
Sure. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, today was a crazy volatile day across the market. Um, and so luckily, we're not looking for any one day in particular to see market movements in a direction. Um, we do think the Achilles story resonates uh, with a lot of investors. And so um, there are going to be volatile days across the market. Uh, from my perspective, uh, I'm looking for a vehicle to be able to grow a big and lasting company. And the beauty of a SPAC um, it, to the, in today's market, even especially, is the amount of capital, the quantum of capital, if you structure it right. And so we were fortunate enough to learn from what happened in the previous uh, SPAC market and actually structure a deal that brought in $164 million um, in the deal, e independent of the redemption profile. Um, so we were able to see that. But the other beauty of a SPAC is getting to partner with people that know how to grow large disruptive businesses in the long term. And I think that's what um, Chamath brings to the table. And he's joining as our chair of our board to be deeply and heavily involved as we grow this business. Now, you have a deep background in drug design and molecular biology, and it is absolutely fascinating. Right. You know, you've been on the show before talking about how, you know, you believe your video game can help uh, treat uh, and, and alleviate some of the most difficult symptoms of ADHD. There are skeptics out there who, who don't believe this can possibly work, who think that or worry that this could make, uh, putting kids in front of a video game could make their disease potentially worse. How do you respond to that? I, I totally agree with the skepticism. I, I accept it and I think it's good. I have three boys myself and I'm very, very, um, uh, I take screen time very seriously, and I'm actually pretty restrictive when it comes to screen time. Um, the problem is that most screen time is not developed for good. Most screen time is developed to capture eyeballs and capture your attention in a way that's not actually aligned with your mental health. And so we're seeing a mental health crisis. We're seeing social media and the effect it has on children. That's exactly why we spent nearly a decade running clinical trials, generating the clinical evidence all the way through to an FDA clearance and now having doctors prescribe the product so that we know, meaning we the medical system, but also we patients, families can trust it. So it is now the only FDA approved uh, treatment that is uh, delivered through a video game. And so it's the only video game that has the level of clinical evidence we have. Um, it's now been prescribed in our pre-launch phase here by doctors in all 50 states in the country. Um, so we believe the investment we've made is is bearing itself out. And, and so the medical system and, and families can trust what they're getting and they can look at all our data that we've run in clinical trials. That's, I think, the right way to bring screen time to the world that's actually positive. You've talked about the mental health crisis as well. How else do you see Achilles technology potentially being used in the future as this idea and you know potentially the realities of digital medicine take shape yeah the beauty of this is when you develop a technology that's meant to target brain regions and not a diagnostic disorder it's meant to target how the brain operates which is what our technology does it has the ability to be a platform across disease and so that's exactly what we've invested in we're looking to not only launch our product Endeavor X for children with ADHD and scale that to a ubiquitous medicine in any household that needs it. We have clinical data showing that the same underlying technology has the potential to treat cognitive issues in adults with depression, adults with MS, children and adolescents with autism. So this is a really broad platform potential. And I think it's the beauty of a new modality of medicine. This has been totally untapped. Molecular medicine, the area I come from, um, where I did my graduate work, 
um, has been around. It's made great progress, but it's very saturated. The area we're going into has been relatively unexploited um, from a from a scientific basis. So I think there's a huge potential. But the other thing I'm really excited about is with software as medicine, you can actually deliver an experience and cater to patients in a way they haven't been delivered to before. As we know, taking medicine is often scary. It's not the most fun. Uh, we can change that with digital medicine. And do you imagine it, your technology being used with um, other prescription, you know, real, I don't want to say real, uh, but you know what I mean, medication, for example, medication. play the game and you take your Ritalin, et cetera? Uh, interestingly, it can be both. It's meant to be part of a total treatment package. So whatever the patient is getting, what, however they're treated, it's not meant to take them off everything they're using. It's meant to add to it. Um, but we've purposefully generated data and, and in our FDA package, data showing that this product works as a, as a treatment combination when used with medication, but also in patients who are not using medication. So okay. it's flexible. It's really its own pillar and docs can choose when and how to use it with their patients. Quickly, what's behind the name Achilles? What does that mean? Ah, Achilles, it's very interesting. Um, so it actually means brain or intellect, um, but with a positive, a healthy connotation. It's a Swahili word. Um, so we, we've kept it since our very early startup days. All right, Addy Martucci, CEO and co-founder of Achilles. Thank you for sharing uh, your story with us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up later this week, Tuesday, we've got the CEO of Palo Alto Networks, Nikesh Arora, talking about earnings and cybersecurity. You don't want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.